This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. I'm not safe now when you have some doctor who actually thinks it's all wonderful, it's all good. It's become that human right. He's got that right to die. Isn't that wonderful? No, we have people who are going through terrible conditions. Yes, we all agree. How do we treat them? How do we deal with them? Do we care for them or do we abandon them to a lethal injection? And I say abandon them. That's what's going on. Talk to Canadian anti-euthanasia campaigner Alex Schadenberg and he'll tell you that the Netherlands' euthanasia laws have spawned a system of legalised killing that's running out of control. In Australia, we hear lots of dark things about the slippery slope the Dutch are sliding down. But what we never hear are the voices of the Dutch themselves. So I decided to go there to find out why euthanasia has more public support in the Netherlands than almost any other country on earth. Maybe there's more to these laws than we're being told. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Perfect goodbye. Of the eugenic impulse. This evaluation of We lives. just don't talk about it. Against the invasion we of death. We play the game. I felt jagged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control the me. The police are obliged to charge me. Away. What the hell can you do? Oh, murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton, and you're listening to Better Off Dead. Just like many of you, I consider the active termination of a human life to be intrinsically problematic. This is Professor Theo Bohr from the Netherlands, speaking via video link to an anti-euthanasia conference in Adelaide. He's a critic of his country's euthanasia regime, but not just any critic. As of 2007... The number of assisted deaths has increased by 15%. The figures are well above the 5,000 line in 2014. For nine years, Teo was one of the cogs in the system, a member of one of the five regional review committees that oversee all euthanasia deaths in the Netherlands. What was once considered a last resort now becomes a default way to die for an increasing number of people. Initially satisfied with how the system was operating, Teo resigned from the review committee in 2014, alarmed at what he saw as evidence of a slippery slope. Whereas in the first years, hardly any patients with psychiatric illnesses or dementia appear in reports, these numbers are now sharply on the rise. Cases have when I heard him speak, I have to admit I was a bit alarmed too. One out of 25 people in the Netherlands now dies with the assistance of a doctor. One in 25? That sounds like a lot. So I've come to the Netherlands to find out firsthand how the system works and if it really is out of control. The Netherlands has been openly debating euthanasia longer than anyone, more than 40 years. 
The euthanasia laws are the longest running in Europe. But the drive to create them didn't come from politicians. It came from doctors. Recognising that, like doctors in many countries, including Australia, they were already ending lives, they pushed for a law that would protect both them and their patients. Based on strict criteria of due care prepared by the Royal Dutch Medical Society, euthanasia became legal in the Netherlands in 2002. Under the law, physician-assisted death is still a crime, but if followed, the due care criteria would protect doctors from prosecution as they help patients with unbearable and untreatable suffering to die. For some Dutchmen, like Henk Retzma, it is a law not to be trusted. I would uh, like to see the laws repealed. Uh, if I'm honest, I, I just don't think that a euthanasia law, a law that, that legitimizes active killing with lethal injection, I don't think it's a, uh, it's a safe option. There's no way to safeguard it. Henk is an ethicist with a focus on faith and science. He's one of many people who's warned me about the slippery slope here, that once you head down the path of legally helping people to die, there's no way of controlling where it goes. He tells me... It's not the safest idea to put the keys of uh, life and death in the hands of uh, somebody outside. But uh, we, uh, we should keep those in our own pockets. But his claim, there's no way to safeguard it, strikes me as odd. Isn't the whole system built on safeguards? Exactly. When you have due care criteria, you can point out that doctors have to act that way, so you create safeguards. This is Eric Willick a senior policy advisor at the Royal Dutch Medical Society. Otherwise, you face the same problems in a medical practice, but you don't have uh, any checks and balances on that. So it's to prevent for abuse and to protect doctors and patients as well. I've asked him to explain how someone becomes eligible for euthanasia under Dutch law. Yeah, first, the patient has to uh, voice his request voluntarily and uh, several times. So he has to be very sure that... In, in a situation of unbearable and hopeless suffering that he wants to die. The patient has to convince the doctor that their suffering is unbearable and hopeless. Being convinced or getting convinced is really active. The patient has to show the doctor and to convince him that the suffering in this situation uh, is really unbearable and the doctor based on his professional guidelines, has to be convinced that there are no reasonable alternatives. So they have to convince each other. Presumably this isn't a quick process. Usually it takes a lot of time. It takes time to grow to each other because doctors for first, they want to cure a patient and when that's not possible, they want to alleviate the suffering. And at the end, when there is no realistic option, then killing a patient uh, might be an option. It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. So the patient has really have to have strong argumentation to convince their doctor. So doctors are not willing to perform euthanasia. They will do everything to prevent that. Eric's explanation makes it clear that being granted the right to euthanasia in the Netherlands is not easy. To convince not one but two doctors of your need, you have to have a compelling case. Curious about what the system is like from the patient's perspective, I went to meet a family who had used the law. My name is Marianne Hoffman, and I'm 46. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> and I am uh, an entrepreneur. I'm Susan, also Hoffman, of course. And I'm a dental nurse, and I'm 49 years old. Meet the Hoffman sisters. 
Why did you laugh when Marianne said 46? Because yes, that's... why did you do that? <laughs> that's just the kind of humour we have. <laughs> I'd arrived expecting a sombre conversation about the death of their mother, Gret. Instead, I found two women bursting with laughter. It soon became clear where that came from. Can you tell me, what kind of a woman was she? Well, she has a lot of humour. Yeah. She had really a lot of humour. That's what I miss, what, what we miss, most, the yeah. most of her. Yeah. Gret Hoffman had been treated for breast cancer many years earlier. When it returned in 2011, it had spread to her stomach, her bladder, her bones. My mother was a very strong woman. Yeah. She had no fear, no fear of death, no fear of life, and no fear of her illness. And uh, she was not upset or angry about life or uh, things what happened to her. Yeah, really yeah. admired that part of my mother. As strong people do, Gret got on with life. She could cycle, she could walk. She was happy on her own way. And the last half year, she really getting down. The pain is getting more. She starts to walk very badly. Cycle, Cycle difficult. Yeah, it was difficult. Yeah. She was um, tired, always tired. Um, Van Depended on my father. My father has yeah. to be there always. So very much the life she didn't want. Oh no, no. Especially the, of only the last half year. So yeah. uh, she didn't want to uh, become another person than she was. She wanted to be able to do what she did during her life. Uh, and if she was not able to walk or uh, cycle, she didn't want to have that life. For Gret, the moment to decide had come. And when she heard in the hospital that there was no way back, so the, the treatment has final point reached, um, she invited us to the hospital. And there we have this family conversation. And um, that was the moment, I think... She said, I want to go home. And she came home and, uh, and then Dr. Kimsma, her doctor, came. And we discussed this with him. And uh, he wanted to do it after the weekend because he needed some time for himself. Because he has this bond all, also with my mother. So when you say you discussed it with him, you discussed your mum ending her life? Yes. And your mum discussed it with him as well? Yes. We were yeah, together. She already told to him, if my mom is calm and I don't get any better, I'm just getting worse and I'm not able to do the things I would like to do, then life has no meaning for me. And he knows that. He knows that. He, yeah, knows, he, knows, he knows, knows that, yeah. yeah. And he'd known your mom and treated her for many, many years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 40 years, I think. Perhaps yeah. longer. Perhaps longer, yeah. Oh, well, longer. Yeah, yeah. How does a doctor make an assessment that a patient's suffering is unbearable? Gret's doctor, Gerrit Kimsma, explains. You, you look at the symptoms and you look at the loss of function. You look at the personality of the patient. You look at the biography of the patient and you look at the context. And then if you have made an inventory of all those items, the next question is, uh, what do certain symptoms mean for patients and why do they feel it's unbearable? And um, pa patients do, do make the final assessment. But a physician has to be convinced that 
this, this totality of symptoms, loss of function, is indeed unbearable. So you have to have a relationship. You have to know your patient. And this is not just one assessment, but it's a continuous assessment. After consultations with Gret, Dr Kimsmer agreed that her suffering, unbearable and untreatable, made her eligible for euthanasia. Her family agreed too. Was everyone in the family in agreement with her? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Her sisters, our father. Yeah. 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 It was difficult for him because he knew that he would be left alone. But consulting with her family GP was only the first step in the formal process for Gret Hoffman to legally get help to end her life. Under the due care criteria of Dutch law, a second independent doctor had to be consulted. Eric Willick from the Royal Dutch Medical Society explains. Another independent physician has to uh, check whether the due care criteria from the doctor who might perform the euthanasia are met or not. So he gives an advice, strong advice to proceed or not. So that's, that's really a safeguard because as a colleague, you will be checked by another colleague considering the, the situation of the patient and also considering uh, whether you as a doctor have acted according to the professional standards and guidelines of palliative care. The second doctors, known as skin doctors, are specially trained in the due care criteria. To ensure that the patient's request is made voluntarily and without coercion, they meet with the patient alone. So the skin doctor came, is yes. that right? And made an assessment. Yes. yes, and we have to leave the room. She wants to know for sure that my mother has made her own decision, that it was not the pressure from us. That's the law. That's the law. In Holland. Yeah. So she needs to ask this question alone. And they t- and she said, yeah, your mother knows what she wants. She's so fed up with it. Yeah. 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 Gret's request met the Netherlands' legal due care criteria. She was capable of making the decision... Her condition was irreversible, her suffering was intolerable, and two independent doctors had considered her request. While the support and understanding of her family was important, the law is clear. Gret's wish to die was a private matter between her and her doctor. The granting of it had a powerful effect on her. Totally, the peacefulness, the peace went over her. Really, I admired her for that. Yeah, and the funny thing, well, that is for me. She loved her house. Of course, she loved us. But the last days, you know, she only looks at sign and then she talks to us and say jokes or something or memories. And then she looked again outside. She was already he, saying goodbye. Leaving us. Yeah, leaving us. And the world. Gret's request for euthanasia having been granted, Eric Willick explains what happens next. Um, then the doctor who's proceeding has to contact the pharmacist because you need the pharmaca to do it uh, medically safely and to be sure that the patient will die. And after that, the euthanasia or the physician-assisted suicide will be scheduled and then it will happen. The physician who is performing, even when he is there with the medication, he will ask the patient at the end, If you're not sure, if you doubt on it, or if you really want to see off of it, it's not a problem, I will just go away. So until the final stage, the doctor wants confirmation of his patient that this is the real request he wants. At every step, there are safeguards to ensure the law is being followed and that vulnerable patients are protected from coercion. And there's one more vital element in the euthanasia mix here in the Netherlands. It comes as something of a revelation 
a concept I've never heard in the bitter, polarising debate in Australia. The doctor perceives his part in the euthanasia as an act of medical friendship. Here's Gret's doctor, Gerrit Kimsmer. In the end, I'm convinced it is a good thing. But the, the fact that you end the life of a patient, and the patient is one minute alive and the next minute the patient is, is dead, is a very shocking experience. And, and one I would not do voluntarily, but I feel that it's part of my obligations. Otherwise, I would have the feeling that I would abandon my patient in the hour of need. Abandon? I think back to Alex Schadenberg. Do we care for them or do we abandon them to a lethal injection? And I say abandon them. That's what's going on. What I'm hearing here strikes me as the opposite of abandon. In fact, to my surprise, I discovered that Kimsma struggled to get himself emotionally ready for what he'd been asked to do. Well, he wanted to, to postpone it. Yes. So he can uh, be used to the idea that my mother was going to die. Yeah. And that's his good heart, his human heart. And I read in her eyes what she wanted. I saw over the weekend, it's too late, because she, she was really tired. She was totally ready for it. But she, to- she also said say to, say to yeah. Kimsma, oh no, dear, please, not, no, not after the not weekend. Not after the weekend, no. So we arranged, yeah. we arranged it. It will, will happen this Friday at five o'clock. And why five o'clock? Because this family... Uh, loves to have a drink with each other. And we started always at five o'clock. <laughs> and then we eat together. So five o'clock, we thought it was a nice yeah. moment. Yeah. When five o'clock came, it came gently. It's one of the most difficult things to do. Difficult, but beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. It was all so peaceful. So quiet, so in harmony. And the doctor went, uh, will come at five o'clock, yeah. And it was peaceful. The situation was peaceful. My mother was contempt. Yeah, and it's something I will never forget. It was a half past four and she looks at the clock and she said, oh, that's funny. In a half hour, I will be dead. That's funny, isn't it? Really? But, okay, <laughs> mom. Yeah, yeah that's funny. That. <laughs> Well, we laughed. Yeah, we laughed. Really? Yeah. And she said, okay, take a drink. We're going to drink yeah. with me. Yeah. She said, I don't, take, I don't take alcohol, but please, you do. Yeah, we cheered. Yeah. We cheered. We cheered about her. And, well, that's the most beautiful of this whole process. Yeah. yeah. That it would end for her. Because she wants also to be quick, to be, that it's done be quickly. Beautiful, but quickly. Yeah. Please don't make a fuss of it. To say, it's yeah, always yeah, nice. yeah. It's true. And it's so strange, but the, the strength we've all felt yeah. was was uh, almost touchable in the room. Yeah. Even Kimsma told us, "I never, uh, uh, I never met experienced this before." This. No. So how uh, it went so peaceful, so in harmony, so beautiful, nearly. He was amazed. Yeah. He was just amazed. Yeah. And still, I feel this yeah, strength, yeah. you know, because I wish everyone a, a perfect goodbye, yeah. a peaceful goodbye. Yeah. So the moment that my mother was there, and, and and I didn't notice at all, and then it suddenly she said, "Oh yeah, I can feel it. I can feel it." And then that was and it. And that was it. 
Because she, she felt, felt the sleeping. Sleep. Uh, in sleep, like, like that, because he, he really did his work. <laughs> the first injection. And it was so beautiful. Uh, she was really glad when she said it. Oh yeah, how are you feeling? I feel it, yeah. It, it, it only lasted five minutes, yeah. but when I think back about it, it feels like a whole life because it was we we had this uh, humor and these jokes and this pure love feeling in the house. Pure love yeah. there was yeah. this, yeah. And I know for sure, and I can say it with a hand on my heart, this is exactly how mother wants. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm sure. I don't know if you believe in life after death, of life after life. I do. And she is sitting on this uh, wolk, cloud, cloud, looking uh, satisfied and very proud. It's hard not to be struck by the civilized way in which Gret Hoffman, who was facing a hard death, was given a choice about how hard it needed to be. Listening to how the due care criteria are applied, it doesn't seem to me that Henk's warning that there's no way to safeguard it holds true. Even less so when Eric Willick explains how carefully each euthanasia death is scrutinized. For first, the doctor has to report, he has to warn the coroner. And the coroner then immediately has contact with the public prosecutor just to be sure and uh, that there are no irregulations on the process. And after that, the coroner will all send the medical journals, the reports, the written requests from the patient, uh, the report from the independent physician and his own report all to the review committee and they will judge on that whether the doctor uh, met the due care criteria or not. And if he doesn't meet the due care criteria, uh, all the paperwork will be uh, sent to the head of the public prosecution and the, the minister of justice is directly involved. So every doctor tries to prevent euthanasia as much as she can. Then he has to act according to due care criteria. He doesn't never alone. Uh, also the pharmacist is involved. So you cannot do it without, uh, there are always other professionals involved, relatives involved, might some nurses involved. So you have to do it really properly and report it. So there's no way you could uh, commit this act and not report it. You would be found out. Everything is possible in life. Mm, yes, and people are devious at times. Exactly. So, um, so we cannot exclude that. So let's be clear. But basically, we know what's happening in, in our medical practice, in society, parliament, uh, and even the Christian parties are really satisfied about what we're doing in the national system and the, the results as well. That's interesting. Not only is there support for euthanasia across the political spectrum here, as there is from all the major medical bodies, but public support for it is at over 80%, amongst the highest in the world. Not what you'd expect from a system that isn't working. Even the insider critic, Theo Bohr, acknowledges that the review system does its job well. The law on assisted dying has in fact led to a practice that is transparent. The review committees report a reporting rate of close to 100%. Practices that formerly took place in hiddenness are now more or less controllable. And despite the claim of some, the law has not led to a deterioration of palliative care. 
In fact, the quality of palliative care has considerably increased in the past decade. He also notes an uncomfortable truth. In 14 years' time, not one case has led to a prosecution. 14 years, not one prosecution. That's quite something. I wondered how rigorous the review process is. Well, I would say it's quite rigorous. Everybody prepares the cases at home, then you meet. Gerrit Kimsmer sat on one of the review committees for 12 years. There are cases that, that hardly warrant extensive discussion. But the few cases that raise questions, you talk about quite extensively. The beginning is not that the doctor is a criminal, but that a physician has gone through the steps of the law, had had a consultation, has was convinced that the suffering was unbearable, and you try to find out, really, why, how that physician came to those conclusions, and whether it, it was warranted or, or not. Any doctor found guilty of breaking the law would almost certainly lose their licence and could face up to 12 years in jail. It's a powerful incentive to follow the rules. I've seen what it does to physicians if the, a review committee says that a case has not been careful, that is psychologically so burdensome, and the uncertainties are so large whether there will be prosecution, that in itself is a terrible punishment, to be honest. It all sounds solid, and yet there is still that nagging statistic of Theo Bors. As of 2007, the number of assisted deaths has increased by 15% annually. One out of 25 people in the Netherlands now dies with the assistance of a doctor. One out of 25? That sounds like a lot. And then I think about it the other way around and realise that, wait a minute... This means that euthanasia laws don't apply to 96% of the people who die here. I asked Eric Willick for an explanation of the rising numbers. Theo de Boer talks about there's been, since 2007 on average, a 15% increase in the number of euthanasia deaths in the Netherlands. Do you see that as uh, underlining his point, that this is a system which has perhaps become too loose? No, I totally disagree because uh, the risk for society without having a uh, legal system and uh, all professional guidelines even bring more risk for society. So it, my explanation for the race, it's true, they're 15% every year. Uh, it also depends on the numbers of people who are dying yearly in society and that number is rising and the numbers of patients who uh, uh, die on cancer is, uh, is rising. So uh, that explains partly why the numbers of reported cases are still ascending. But more, I think more adding to that is that doctors are more aware of how to proceed and how they feel a little bit more sure on how to act uh, within the, f the framework. And also very important is that patients, they learn that we have a law, that they have the right to ask a request, not that, that they have to, uh, a right on euthanasia, but they have a right to request on euthanasia. Official figures show that of all the deaths in the Netherlands every year, the number due to euthanasia is a tiny 4% but it's who those people were that tells the real story. 90% of them were suffering with incurable diseases, heart failure, neurological disorders, cancer. These people were dying anyway. This hardly squares with Teo's claim that what was once considered a last resort now becomes a default way to die for an increasing number of people. There's another surprising figure too, one that Teo didn't mention. Two-thirds of all euthanasia requests are declined. 
Uh, what we know from uh, research is that uh, one third of the serious requests will be granted, so two thirds not. In the group of two thirds is uh, because patients withdraw their, their request. Uh, the suffering is not unbearable, the suffering is not hopeless, uh, patients die. There are all different reasons why the euthanasia is not uh, granted at that stage. Looked at closely, euthanasia numbers in the Netherlands appear less like proof of a slippery slope and more like evidence of a system doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is to help that small number of people whose suffering is beyond the reach of medical science to die humanely. I put Teo's concerns to Gerrit Kimsma. Teo believes that it is a dangerous thing for this society that euthanasia is now seen as a readily available option. I, I disagree uh, fundamentally because euthanasia is not an option to solve social problems. Euthanasia is an option for individuals who ask for it and who do not get it if they do not ask for it. And the fact that there are more people asking for it in itself has no moral significance other than that more people choose to have an end of life that they really want, which I think is a good thing. A choice about the end of life you really want. That strikes me as being a very good thing. And yet the Netherlands is constantly held up to us as a warning about what will happen if we get our own laws to assist people to die. See, we're told, it's out of control. People are abandoned. You can't safeguard it. From what I've seen here, the opposite is true. But then maybe I haven't been looking in the right places. Because there are other stories about the Netherlands of people with severe dementia being helped to die, of mobile death clinics, and of people being euthanized without their consent. Maybe that's the slippery slope people talk about. If it is, next episode, I'm going to find out. Meanwhile, if you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter.com slash betteroffdead. The life we live is so short, and the, the thing we know is going to die. Everybody does. Everybody does. And this is uh, the way our mother wanted it. And she was so uh, peaceful with it. Now we all want that you yeah. can choose the way you want to die. Angels shooting from your brow Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels dancing on your breast Angels happy just to linger North and south, east and west